Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Peter Lee. Peter is a corporate vice president at Microsoft, responsible for the company's healthcare initiatives. Peter, it is so great to speak with you again. Welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Sam, it's great to be here. Uh, So, Peter, you gave a really interesting presentation to a group that I was at at uh, Ignite about what some of Microsoft. Uh, was working on in at Microsoft Research, as well as a really interesting take on AI development in China. They kind of piqued my interest, and we ended up sitting down to chat about that uh, in a little bit more detail. Uh, and while we, uh, I did cover that uh, for my blog and newsletter, and I'll be linking to it in the show notes, we won't be diving into that uh, today. It was a really, really interesting take that I reflect on often. Um, and I think it's an interesting setup for diving into your background because you do have a very interesting background and an interesting uh, perspective and set of responsibilities uh, at Microsoft. Uh, so on that note, can you share with uh, our audience a, a little bit about your background? Sure, Sam. Uh, I'd love to do that. Um, I, I, I agree it is a little bit unusual, although I, I think the common thread throughout has been uh, about research and trying to bring research into the real world. And so I'm a computer scientist by training. I was a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon for a long time, actually for 24 years. Uh, And at the end of my time there was the head of the computer science department. And then I went to Washington, D.C. to serve uh, at an agency called DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Uh, That's kind of the storied research agency that uh, built the Saturn V booster technology, um, invented the ARPANET, which became the internet, uh, developed robotics, lots and lots of other things. Um, and I, I learned a lot uh, about bringing research to life there. Um, and then um, after a couple of years there, I was recruited to Microsoft and joined Microsoft Research, uh, started uh, managing the Mothership Lab in Redmond, in the headquarters in Redmond, and then a little bit later, all of the U.S. research labs, and then ultimately uh, all of Microsoft's 13 labs around the world. And right about that time, uh, Steve Ballmer announced his retirement. Satya Nadella took over as the CEO. Um, Harry Shum uh, took over uh, all of AI and research at Microsoft and became my boss. And uh, they asked me to start a new type of research organization that internally is called NEXT, uh, which stands for New Experiences and Technologies. And, uh, and you know, we've been sort of trying to grow and incubate new research-powered businesses uh, ever since, and most recently in healthcare. I think when I think about AI and healthcare, there's certainly a ton of ground to cover there. But I think one of the areas that gets a lot of attention of late is all the progress that's being made around applying neural nets, uh, CNNs in particular, to imagery. Uh, I'm wondering, from from your perspective, you know, how do you tend to think about AI applied to the healthcare space and where the big opportunities are? Yeah, I, you know, when I think about AI and healthcare, uh, I'm really optimistic 
about the future. Not that there aren't huge, difficult problems, and sometimes things always seem to grow slower than you expect. Uh, it's a little bit like watching grass grow. You know, it does grow and things do happen, but sometimes it's hard hard to see it. Um, but you know, over the last fifteen years, the thing that I think is underappreciated is the entire healthcare industry has gone digital. You know, it was only 15 years ago that, for example, in the United States, uh, less than 10% of physicians were recording your health history in a digital electronic health record. And now, you know, we're up you know, over 95%. And, and that's just a, an amazing transformation over 15 years. And it's not like we don't still have problems. The data is siloed. Uh, it's not in standard formats. There's all sorts of problems. But the fact that it's gone digital just opens up huge, huge uh, amounts of potential. And so I, I kind of look at the potential for AI in, in three areas. Uh, one is sort of the thing that you pointed at, which are um, AI technologies that actually lead to better diagnostics and therapeutics, you know, things that actually advance medical science and medical technology. Uh, a second area for AI is uh, uh, is in the area of tools, tools that actually make doctors better at what they do, uh, make them happier uh, while they're doing it, uh, and also improve the experience for you and me as patients or consumers of healthcare. And then the third area is in this wonderful future of precision medicine you know, that's taking new sources of information digital information, your genome, your proteome, your immunome, um, data from your fitness wearables and so on, and integrating all of that together to give you a complete picture of, of what's going on with your body. So those are sort of three broad areas, and they're, they're all incredibly exciting right now. When you think about the, the first two of those categories, better diagnostics and therapeutics and, and tools, how do you distinguish them? It, it strikes me that giving doctors a better way to, to analyze medical imagery, for example, or to use that example again, uh, is a tool that, that they can use. But when you say tools, what do you specifically mean? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There's an overlap. It's not like the boundaries between these things are, uh, are all that uh, hardened. But if you think about one problem that doctors have today is um, – by some estimates in the United States, doctors are spending 40 to 50% of their work days uh, entering documentation, entering notes that record what happened in their encounters with patients. And that's sometimes called an encounter note. And that documentation is actually required now uh, by various rules and regulations. It's an incredible source of burnout. In fact, I, I'm guessing you've had this experience. Most people have. You go to your doctor. Uh, I go to mine, and I, I like her very much. But while I'm being examined by her, she's not looking at me. She's actually sitting at a PC mm -hmm. uh, typing in the encounter notes. And the reason she's doing that is if she doesn't do it while she's examining me, she'll have to do it for a couple of hours, maybe in the evening, taking time away from her own family. And that burden uh, is credited or blamed for a rise in physician burnout. Well, AI technologies today are rapidly approaching the point where uh, an ambient intelligence can just observe and listen to a doctor-patient encounter uh, and automate the vast majority of the burden of that 
required clinical note-taking. And so that's an example of a kind of technology that could, in a really material way, just improve the lives and the workday satisfaction of doctors and nurses. And that's, I put that in a different category uh, than technologies that, that actually give you more precise diagnosis of what's ailing you um, or ability to target ther therapies you know, that might actually attack the very specific genetic makeup, let's say, of the cancer that's inhabiting your body right now. Got it. Got it. Um, so maybe let's take each of these categories in turn. I'd love to get a perspective from you on, you know, where you see the important developments coming from, from a research perspective and where you see uh, the opportunities uh, and where you see things heading in each. Sure. Um, well, why don't we start with your uh, example of imaging? Uh, because, you know, computer vision based on deep neural nets uh, has just been progressing at this stunning rate. And it seems like every week you see another company, another startup, or another university research group uh, showing off their latest advances in using deep neural net-based computer vision technologies to do various kinds of medical image diagnosis or segmentation. Uh, and here at Microsoft, um, we've been working pretty hard on those as well. Uh, we have this wonderful program uh, based primarily in India uh, that's been trained on the health records and uh, eye images of over 200,000 patients. And that idea of taking all of that data, you get the signal of which of those patients have, let's say, suffered uh, from, say, diabetic retinopathy uh, or a progression of refractive error leading to blindness. And from that signal in the electronic health record, coupled with the images, we are able to train a computer vision-based thing to make a prediction about uh, whether a child uh, whose eye image has been taken is in danger of losing eyesight. And that is in deployment right now in India. And of course, uh, for other parts of the world, like the United States and Europe, which are more regulated, uh, these things are in various states of clinical validation, uh, so they can be more broadly deployed. An another example is um, a project that we have called Inner Eye that is trying to just reduce the incredible kind of boring and mundane problem of just pixel by pixel outlining the parts of your body that are tumor and should be attacked with a radiation beam uh, as opposed to the healthy tissue. And that problem of radiation therapy planning uh, has to be done really perfectly, which is why it's this sort of pixel by pixel process. Um, but, you know, there is maybe you know, five or 15 minutes of real black magic that's drawing on all of the intuition and experience and wisdom of a radiologist, and then two to three hours of, of complete drudgery. And much of that complete drudgery can just be eliminated with modern computer vision technologies. And so these things are, are really developing so rapidly and, and coming online. And they tend not to replace completely what doctors and radiologists can do because there is always some judgment and intuition involved in these things. But when done right, they can integrate into the workflow to really enable 
to kind of liberate clinicians from from a lot of drudgery and, and to reduce mistakes. And um, and I think one other thing that's sometimes not fully appreciated is you also when you get these tools, you can take these measurements over and over and over again. When they become cheap, you can take them every day if necessary, which allows you to track the progression of a disease or its treatment over time much more precisely. And so these sorts of applications, I think, in, uh, uh, in uh, medical imaging, I, I think, are really promising. One thing, I, uh, it's a hobby horse of mine, um, before I pause, is um, you know, in, in 2015, uh, here in Microsoft Research, we invented something called deep residual networks. Uh, which are now commonly called ResNet. And ResNet has become uh, part of an industry standard and research standard in computer vision using deep neural nets. We ourselves have refrained from using ResNets for doing things like um, imaging of 3D images for the purposes of radiation therapy planning. And there are various technical reasons for that. Um, And so sometimes we have a mixture of being proud, seeing the rest of the world use our invention, uh, for interesting medical imaging, but we also sometimes get worried that people don't quite understand the failure modes in these things. Um, but but still, the progress has just been spectacular. I mean, that's uh, kind of an interesting prompt. Uh, maybe let's take a moment to explore the failure modes and, and why don't you, uh, it sounds like you don't advise folks to apply ResNets to the types of images that we tend to see in medical imaging. What's that about? Yeah, it's not uh, advising or, or warning people against it. Um, so if you think about, let's say, take the problem of radiation therapy planning, uh, it's a 3D problem. You, you have a tumor that is a 3D mass in your body, and you're trying to come up with the plan for that radiation beam to attack, ideally, as, as much of that tumor while preserving as much healthy tissue as possible. And, of course, your picture into that 3D tumor is as a series of two-dimensional slices, uh, at least with current medical imaging. And so one very basic question is, as you examine slice by slice uh, that, uh, you know, that, uh, that tumor with respect to the healthy tissue, uh, is each slice being properly and logically registered with the next one? And... A simple or naive application of a convolutional neural network uh, like a ResNet uh, doesn't automatically do that. The other problem is um, it's unclear to what extent a bad training sample or set of training samples will do to uh, uh, one of these uh, deep neural nets. And in fact, just in the last few weeks and months, uh, there have been more and more interesting academic research studies uh, showing some interesting failure modes uh, from a surprisingly small number of, of, of bad training samples. And so I think that these things um, you know, are changing all the time. Our algorithms and our algorithmic understanding are improving all the time. Um, but at least uh, within our research groups, uh, we've taken pains to understand that this application of computer vision isn't like others. You know, it's more in the realm of, say, driverless cars, where safety is of paramount uh, concern. And we just have to have absolute certainty 
uh, that we understand the possible failure modes of these things. And sometimes um, uh, with just uh, an off-the-shelf application of ResNets or any similar kind of deep neural net algorithm, uh, we and now more and more other researchers at, at universities are finding that we don't yet fully understand the failure modes. In some ways, kind of there's there's an opportunity beyond kind of naive application of a an algorithm that performs very well on ImageNet. So for so today you can get data sets that include kind of these 2D representations of what are fundamentally 3D applications or 3D images and kind of apply the regular 2D algorithms to them and find interesting things. But you're saying that they're, you know, A, we can do better and B, we not may not even be doing the right things in many cases because of these safety issues. Um, I'm wondering, do you uh, on the the first of those two points, the doing better, is there either a standard approach that's you know that's better than ResNet for these three D images that uh, you've developed at Microsoft or have seen otherwise, or you know where are we in terms of taking advantage of the three D nature of medical images and deep learning? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, for our NRI project, which is really a uh, you know, run by um, a great a uh, set of researchers uh, based mostly in our Cambridge, UK research lab um, and led by Antonio Cremonisi. Uh, and and uh, he's really uh, one of the preeminent authorities in computer vision. Uh, and in fact, he, he led an effort uh, some years ago to work out the 3D computer vision for Connect. Um, and, and so he's really specialized in 3D. Um, and, and so the inner eye project, which is really, for us, an effort to really understand completely the workflow of uh, radiation therapy planning. Uh, that system actually doesn't use a residual network. Uh, what it does is it uses a, a kind of an architecture of layered what are called decision forests. And that gives uh, not only some benefits in terms of more compact representations of the machine learned models, um, and therefore some performance improvements, uh, but it allows us to kind of capture a kind of logical registration uh, of, uh, of the images as they go slice by slice. Uh, in, in other words, it's you're inferring not just the segmentation of each 2D uh, image slice, uh, but you're actually trying to infer the voxel, the 3D voxel, uh, um, volume of these uh, of the tumor that you're trying to attack, and so uh, and then on top of that, there's a process involved when you're dealing with medical technologies. You you don't just put it out there and start applying it on people. Uh, you get it peer reviewed. You get it peer reviewed in in this case in computer science uh, journals and in medical journals, uh, and you go through a clinical validation. Uh, and if you're in the, in the United States, for example, um, through an FDA approval process. And so for us, as we're learning about what does our cloud, what do our AI services, what do our tools have to be in order to support this future of, of AI-powered healthcare, um, you know, in their eyes, an example of us going end-to-end -end to try to build it all out and to understand all those components uh, and to understand what has to be done to to really do it right, and and 
uh, it's been a great learning experience. We're now in the process, uh, not only of working with various companies who might want to integrate this inner eye technology uh, into their medical devices, um, but we're starting to now pull apart the kind of bricks and mortar that we used in the technical architecture for inner eye in order to expose those as APIs uh, for other developers to use. And so our intent is not to get into the radiation therapy business. Our intent is not to get into radiology, uh, but we do want our cloud and our AI services and our algorithms to be a great place for any other company or any other startup or innovator who wants to do that and, and ideally do it on our cloud using our tools. So an interesting point in there, you mentioned that the uh, decision for us that you've developed to address this problem, you know, I guess we often think of there being this trade-off between factors like explainability uh, or, you know, safety as you um, related that second point and performance, uh, which we think of as the neural net is delivering the kind of the ultimate in performance uh, in many cases. But in this case, your this decision forest algorithm is outperforming your at least your classic 2D ResNets. Uh, and I'm imagining also providing benefits in terms of explainability slash safety. Is that correct? Well, I, 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 we feel very strongly that it provides benefits in terms of safety. Explainability is really another very interesting uh, question and, and the problem. And, and so there's a potential for greater explainability. You know, one of the lessons that we learned when we were working on uh, AI for sales intelligence and so we had really developed a tremendous amount of AI that would ingest large amounts of data from, from the world as well as from customer relationship management databases, emails, and so on uh, for our sales teams. And use that uh, through various AI algorithms to do things like uh, synthesize new offers to, uh, to specific customers or to surface new prospective customers or to suggest new discount pricing for specific customers. And one of the things we learned is that um, you know, no self-respecting sales executive is going to offer you know, a 20% discount to a customer uh, just because his algorithm says so. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, the, typically... Doctors are probably similar. That's right. And so, so in that situation, we also moved away from... Uh, in, in that specific case, uh, moved away from a pure deep neural net uh, architecture uh, to having a, a kind of layered architecture of uh, Bayesian graphical models. Um, and the reason for that was so that we could synthesize an explanation in plain English of not only you know, offer a 20% discount, but why. And as we get into away from more kind of point solutions that are kind of machine learning or AI powered, to more of that digital assistant that is the companion to a clinician and gives that clinician a second opinion or advice on a first opinion, uh, those sorts of explanations undoubtedly are going to become important, especially at the beginning when, when we're trying to establish trust in these things. Um, and so, you know, as we've been experimenting, even with the kind of 
ambient intelligence to just listen in on a on a doctor patient encounter and try to automate a note one thing we found is that that doctors will look at the synthesized note and not trust everything in it because they don't quite yet have the understanding of you know why did the note come out this way and so it became important uh, to provide tools so that when you you know, say click on a specific entry in the note that it could be mapped back to a running transcript yeah, and to the right spot in the running transcript that was recorded. And and so these sorts of things I think are part of the maybe the human computer interaction or the human AI interaction uh, that we're having to think about pretty hard uh, as we try to integrate these things into into clinical workflow. Uh, before we move on beyond diagnostics and therapeutics, the, all of the examples that you gave fell into the domain of computer vision. Are there interesting things happening in diagnostics uh, beyond the kind of onslaught of these new computer vision-based approaches? Yeah, I think actually uh, some of the most interesting things are are not in computer vision. Uh, and this maybe crosses over into the precision medicine, medicine thing. Uh, one of the projects I'm so excited about is something that we're doing jointly with uh, Seattle biotech startup, Adaptive Biotechnologies. And so the setup is this. Um, you know, if you take a small blood sample from your body, uh, in that sample, in that one mil sample, you'll end up capturing on the order of one million T-cells. The T-cells are one of the primary agents in your adaptive immune system. And about two and a half years ago, uh, there was a major scientific breakthrough uh, that got uh, published that showed that the receptor, there's a receptor on the surface of the of your T-cells, and in that receptor, there's a small snippet of DNA. Uh, and there was strong evidence two and a half years ago that that snippet of DNA completely determines what pathogen or infectious disease agent or cancer that T-cell has been programmed to seek out and destroy. And there, that paper was very interesting because it used a simple uh, linear reg regression in order to uh, identify from a read of that little snippet of DNA on your T-cell receptor uh, whether you had cyto, uh, CMV, cytomegalovirus, or not. And so it was really just an impressive paper and, and just very recent. Well, the thing that was interesting about adaptive biotechnologies is adaptive biotechnologies was in the business of giving you a printout of that specific snippet of DNA in all the T-cell receptors in a blood sample. So they, they had a business model uh, that would help some cancer centers uh, titrate the amount of a specific chemotherapy you were getting based on a reading of the DNA. And so that raised the question, would it be possible to take that printout of those T-cell receptor DNA sequences and, in essence, think of that as a language and translate it into the language of antigens? And, and then, if you can do that, can you take those antigens and do a kind of topic identification problem to figure out what infectious diseases, what cancers, and what autoimmune disorders your body is currently coping with right now. And so 
it turned into this very interesting new business opportunity for adaptive biotechnologies that if machine learning could be used to solve those two problems, then they would have a technology that would be very similar to a universal diagnostic, a simple blood test powered by machine learning that could do early diagnosis of any infectious disease, any cancer, and any autoimmune disorder. And so uh, Microsoft found that interesting enough that we actually took an investment position in adaptive biotechnologies and agreed to work with them on the machine learning. Uh, and adaptive, for their part, uh, agreed to build a bigger production pipeline in order to generate training data to power the machine learning that, uh, that we're developing at, machine, at, at Microsoft. What has transpired since then has been an amazing amount of progress where we've added tremendous amount of sophistication, uh, actually using deep neural nets, um, and uh, started to feed it with billions of points of training data. And in fact, this year, the production facility at Adaptive will be able to generate up to a trillion points of training data. Uh, and we're now targeting five specific uh, diseases, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, uh, type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, and Lyme disease. And so that's two cancers, two autoimmune disorders, and one infectious disease with the same machine learning pipeline. Um, and it's, it's still an experiment, but it kind of shows you the potential power of these advances in immunology, in genomics, and AI all being bound together to give the possibility. We know the science now is valid. And if we can now build the technology that ties those things together, uh, we get the potential for a universal diagnostic. The, as close a thing that we could imagine getting to the Star Trek tricorder um, as anything. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the, the, the thing that popped immediately to mind for me, um, the tricorder. But that example, I think, captures, for me, really plainly both the... The, the promise of applying machine learning and AI to uh, this healthcare domain, but also maybe a little bit of the, the frustration and like thinking through, okay, you're collecting a trillion samples and you've got this pipeline. Why does it take so long? And there's certainly kind of regulatory and political types of reasons that maybe we'll get into. Um, but I'm wondering if you can elaborate on, you know, with that much training data and kind of, you know, the, the science in place and a, a, a pipeline in place, what are the realities of applying machine learning in this type of context that uh, impede kind of rapid scale? Like why just five diseases and not 25, for example? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, um, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, human biology is just so complicated. <laughs> you know, uh, let's see, there are, like, there are three ways maybe uh, to take a cut at that. If we just look at the very basic science, uh, just consider the human genome, uh, something that geneticists at several universities have taught me, which was really eye-opening, is um, in... If you look at the human genome and then look at all the possible variants, the, the, the number of variants in the human genome that you know, would still be considered you know, homo sapiens is just astronomically large. 
And and yet the total number of people on the planet is a, a relative that number is really tiny. You know, only what seven and a half billion people. And in fact, if we had somehow DNA samples from every human that has ever existed, I think most estimates say there are fewer than 106 billion people that have ever existed since Adam and Eve. And so if we are using modern machine learning, which is basically looking at statistical patterns and correlations, uh, we have an immediate problem for a lot of basic problems in genomics because uh, you know, we basically don't have a source of enough training data. The complexity of human beings, the complexity of cancer, the complexity, the genetic complexity of disease is just vastly larger uh, than, than the number of people that have ever existed. Meaning and so, it, yeah. relative to the, the possible combinations of, uh, of genes, every right. human is, you know, is, I guess, you know, it shouldn't be surprising that every human is unique, but even given, I mean, it's a little counterintuitive. You think there's like only like these four letters that we're throwing together to make <laughs> all this stuff out, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and, and so, you know, and so what that means is that, um, yes, we will, and, and we have been making, we meaning the scientific community and the technology community, have been making stunning advances and making really meaningful improvements for neonatal intensive care, for cancer treatments, for uh, immunology. But it, it, it fundamentally, scientifically, we still need something beyond just machine learning. And it, it, we really need something that gets into the basic biology. And so that's kind of one reason why this is hard. Another reason is these are just big problems. In the project with adaptive biotechnologies, uh, there are... Uh, between 10 to the 15th and 10 to the 16th uh, different um, T-cell receptors that your body can produce uh, and on the order of maybe 10 to the 7th known antigens. Um, and, and so imagine what we're trying to do is trying to fill out a gigantic Excel spreadsheet you know, with 10 to the 16th columns and 10 to the 7th rows. Mm -hmm. And that's just a heck of a big table. Um, and so you end up needing a large amount of training data to discern enough structure, uh, find enough patterns in, in order to have a shot at filling in at least useful parts of that table. The good news is, um, you know, everybody has T cells. And so we can take blood samples uh, from anybody, from just ordinary healthy people. Uh, and then we can go to research laboratories around the world uh, that have stored libraries of antigens uh, and start you know, kind of correlating those uh, stored libraries of antigens against those uh, what are called naive blood samples. And that's exactly what adaptive biotechnologies is doing in order to generate the very large amount of training data. So it's a little bit of a good news situation there that we don't need to find thousands or millions of sick people. Uh, we can generate the data uh, from just ordinary Samples, but it's still a very large amount of data that we need. And then, you know, the the you know third kind of way that I think about this is, um, you know, it's it gets back to the safety issue. You know, we we do things a certain way um, because ultimately, medicine and medical science is based on causal relationships. In other words, you know, we want to know that A causes B. Um, but what we typically get out of machine learning is just uh, A is correlated with B. 
uh, we get those inferences. And it, then it takes more work and more testing under controlled circumstances to know that there's a causal relationship. And so all three of those things kind of create uh, you know, challenges. It's, uh, it does take time. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, I think the good thing is as the regulatory organizations like the FDA have gotten smarter and smarter about what is machine learning, what is it good for, what are its limitations, uh, that whole process has gotten, I think, faster and more efficient over time. Um, and then, um, and then there's a, a second element, which is, of course, companies are in it to make money. Uh, at a minimum, even if they have purely humanitarian intentions, at a minimum, they have to be sustained over time. And so that means that insurance companies, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, they have to be willing to reimburse doctors and nurses uh, when they actually use or prescribe these diagnostics and therapeutics. And so all of that takes time. At, at least on the, the the second of your three points in thinking about scaling, solving problems like this, uh, specifically training data, do you have a, a, a rule of thumb, a chart that says, okay, you know, our one trillion training samples will get us these five diseases, but we'll need 10 trillion to get to 10 diseases? I, I realize that that's almost an asinine question, and it's much more complex than that. But do you... It, it, does it make sense at all to think of it like that and, and like think of, I guess, the impact of collecting training data and what the trajectory looks like that over time? Kind of like the way we thought of, you know, as we drive the cost of sequencing down, the downstream effects that that'll have? Yeah, well, when, when you find the answer to that question, please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's um, I, so in my experience, uh, I've seen this go two ways. Uh, you know, one of the wonderful things about modern machine learning algorithms today is that they're they're far less susceptible to uh, problems of overfitting. Uh, uh, they come very close to this this wonderful property that the more data, the more better. And um, but it does happen that sometimes you hit a wall. You know that you st start to see a trail off in improvement. And, um, and so it, we really don't know. We're very, the, the kind of early results that we've gotten with admittedly simpler diseases uh, like CMV. And then CMV is actually, you know, not that interesting from a medical perspective. Um, they give us tremendous hope. And then other kind of internal, more technical validations um, give us supreme confidence that the basic science, the biological science, is well understood now. Um, but you know, once you start really attacking much more complex diseases, you know, like any cancer, um, it's it's really hard. Uh, I I would be unwilling personally to make a prediction uh, about what will happen. Um, but you know, there's every reason today for optimism. Um, and and I think the only unknown is you know whether there is a uh, whether we fall off a cliff uh, at, at some point and and s stop finding improvements, um, or you know if we're uh, you know if if we're going to just get to a viable FDA approved diagnostic in the near term that will be constantly improving as more and more people are diagnosed. So so it could really go in either way. 
and um, you know, I'm I'm really unable and actually unwilling to make a prediction about which way it will go. Um, but but we are feeling pretty confident. Incidentally, I should say, um, you know, last month Adaptive Biotechnologies uh, closed a deal with Genentech uh, for applications of this T cell receptor antigen map uh, in the therapeutic space uh, in the area of cellular therapies for uh, targeted uh, cancer uh, treatments. And, um, and that deal uh, has a value of um, over $2 billion. So there's also some, you know, when you're dealing with kind of commercial relationships like that, you know, there, you know, there's a tremendous amount of due diligence. Um, there's also, you know, these are big bets and a big pharma is, um, is accustomed to making uh, large risky bets like this. But I think it's, it's another sign that at least leading scientists at one of the larger pharmaceutical organizations is also increasingly confident uh, that, that, that we can fill out this map. So we've talked about diagnostics. We've talked about uh, precision medicine. What do you see happening on the tooling side, both from the doctor's perspective as well as the patient experience perspective? Yeah. You know, one thing that uh, it's, a, it's a simple thing, but it's been surprising how useful it, it uh, has turned out to be. We've been piloting uh, chatbot technology you know, that we call the Microsoft HealthBot. And uh, this has been sort of in a beta program um, with uh, a few dozen healthcare organizations. And um, in, in what it does is it uh, we've sort of advanced our cognitive services for language processing, for natural language processing, uh, for conversational understanding, uh, and the tooling uh, to provide a drag-and-drop interface so that uh, ordinary people can program uh, these chatbots, at least uh, for medical settings. And then we've improved the models, the language models, so that they understand medical and healthcare concepts and terms. And so we've been su surprised at the kinds of applications that, that people use. So one example is um, there are organizations that have made prescription bots. So the idea is this. Uh, maybe you get a prescription from your doctor or from the hospital. You go to the pharmacy. You get your prescription filled. And then a day or two later, uh, you get a message from this intelligent chatbot just asking, you know, how's it going? Uh, have you had any, do you have any questions or have you had any issues with your medication? And it, it invites you proactively to get into a, a conversation that gives the healthcare provider tremendous insight into whether you're adhering to your prescription. That's a huge problem. Something like 35% of people actually don't follow through uh, with their prescription medications. Um, and is just there to answer questions. You know, maybe you have some stomach upset um, or, you know, uh, some people who are on a lot of medica medications uh, hate ha having all those bottles and they put them all, uh, you know, dump all the pills into a baggie and then they can't remember which pills are which. And so the health bot is able to converse with you and say, oh, well, why don't you point your phone camera at this, uh, at, at, at a bunch of pills and I'll remind you what they are. And it uses modern computer vision, ResNets actually, <laughs> to, to remind you uh, what these pills are. And, and so the kind of engagement in, uh, that, that the healthcare providers uh, get 
the improvements in uh, in engagement and the satisfaction that that people like you and me uh, have is uh, is really improved. Or just asking simple benefits questions uh, or medical triage of various sorts. These these kinds of ideas have been. Uh, surprisingly interesting, and in fact, so surprising for us that um, later this week uh, we'll be making that product generally available uh, for sale. And so you'll be able to use the Microsoft HealthBot technology um, without any restrictions, well, um, except for payment, of course. And so that is something that uh, has gone extremely well. And that technology now is kind of being baked into more and more of, I think, of what people will be seeing, you know, we have a collaboration hub uh, application in Office 365 called Teams. And Teams has been this just wonderful technology for improving collaboration in all sorts of uh, workplace settings. Um, Well, we've made Teams healthcare compliant and able to connect to electronic health record systems. And then by integrating a great kind of collaboration intelligence uh, tools to just kind of parse records or know where to go to find certain bits of information or just to be able to ask an intelligent agent uh, that is part of your team, you know, uh, did so-and-so um, uh, check, you know, the the sutures last night and be able to get a smart answer uh, whether people are awake or not. You know, is are all these little ways that I think AI can be used in the workflow of healthcare delivery. Now, one of the things that is, I think, underappreciated about healthcare delivery today, especially in acute care settings, is it's a super collaborative environment. Sometimes there can be as many as 20 people that are working together as a team, delivering care to multiple patients at a time. And so how to keep that team of 20 people all on the same page and all coordinated is getting to be a really difficult problem uh, typically done with, you know, post-it notes and you know, half-erased whiteboards, uh, now transitioning to pretty insecure consumer messaging apps. Um, but the idea of having real enterprise-grade collaboration support with AI, uh, I, I think, just can make all of that much better and then provide much more security and privacy for people. So a lot of these applications of AI end up being you know, more, um, you know, less flashy, you know, than doing some automatic uh, radiation therapy planning on the medical image. Um, but they really kind of help people, you know, those people on the front lines of healthcare delivery uh, do their jobs better. Yeah, I tend to find myself having a really kind of mixed feelings about conversational applications, at least from the perspective of talking about them on the podcast. Like, I think that they are, there's no question that conversational experiences and interfaces will be a huge part of the way we interact with computers in the future. And that there's tons of work that needs to happen there because of the reasons that you mentioned, like less flashy. I wonder if there's still interesting research, or at least my question to you is, are there still interesting research challenges there? Or is it all you know, do we have all the pieces and it's just kind of kind of rolling up the sleeves and, you know, building enterprise software, which we know is hard and takes time? Yeah, it's a good question. 
it feels like research to me. Um, and <laughs> some Elaborate. of the problems are <laughs> some of the problems. If anything, uh, feel a little difficult. Honestly, mm-hmm. you know, it's um, so. You know, if we just say take the problem of listening to a doctor-patient conversation, mm-hmm. and from that understanding what should go into the standard form of a clinical encounter note. Um, here's a typical thing. There could be an exchange if, let's say, Sam, you're my doctor and I'm your patient, mm-hmm. and you might be asking me how I'm doing, and I might complain about uh, you know the pain in my left knee hasn't gone away, um, and what you know, and we can have an exchange about how that goes, and ultimately, what goes into the note by you is a note about my continued lack of weight loss and that my, you know, being overweight is uh, contributing to uh, a lack of healing uh, with my knee problem. Hmm. That may or may not have been a part of our conversation. Hmm. And, and so while it's important that the weight loss element be in that clinical note, in fact, it might even mean revenue for that doctor because there may be a weight loss program that gets prescribed and so on. Uh, that's important, and it's important not to miss that. Um, it, the human exchange here and the things that are implicit in those conversations, let alone the fact that I'll say kneecap and you'll say patella, yeah, uh, are things that are, you know, are as close to general artificial intelligence style problems as anything. Yeah, and and so you know it's. Uh, and look, we don't kid ourselves that we're anywhere close to solving those types of problems, but those are the kinds of problems we think about, uh, even when we just look at the kind of day-to-day, minute-by-minute work that people do uh, to, to deliver healthcare. Right, right. Um, here's another one that's uh, interesting. To really unlock the power of AI, uh, what we would want to do is to just open up huge databases to great researchers and innovators everywhere. Um, But of course, we need to do that without violating anyone's privacy. And so there's one problem, uh, something called de-identification. It would be great to be able to take a treasure trove of, let's say, electronic health records and quote-unquote de-identify it. Well, some parts of those electronic health records are easy to do because there might be a field called social security number, another field called name, another one called address, and so on. So you can just scrub those out. But large amounts of clinical data uh, involve just unstructured notes. Uh, And to really have a deep understanding of what's in those notes and and in order to scrub those in a way that won't inadvertently reveal somebody's identity or their medical condition, again, is something that in the ultimate uh, ends up being uh, a very general AI problem. That's a a great reframing of the way to think about this. It's like, yes, most chatbots are boring because they, they're boring. It's like, you know, the, the kind of the entity intent framework that, you know, most chatbots are, are built on is kind of like table stakes relative to what we're really trying to do with conversational experiences. And, and that is, that really requires a level of sophistication, uh, in our ability to use and work with and manipulate natural language that is very much at the research frontier now. And that's why most 
current, you know, in production chatbots are kind of boring. Yeah, we've um, taken a step forward of trying to think of these things almost in terms of um, playing, you know, uh, being able to play a game of 20 questions. You know, one of the most inspiring applications of health bots that we dream about is in matching people to clinical trials. You know, at, at any point, there are thousands of clinical trials available, and you can go to a website called clinicaltrials.gov, and um, there's a search bar there, um, and you can type in something like breast cancer. And when you do that, you get this gigantic dump of every registered clinical trial going on that might be pertinent to breast cancer. And while that's useful, the problem with that is it's hard to know which ones of those, you know, if you are, say, someone who's desperate to find a clinical trial to enroll in because you've run out of other viable options for whatever uh, is ailing you, it's just almost impossible to go through all of that technical information and try to understand this. And so, you know, would it be possible to use an AI to read through all that technical information and then to synthesize what amounts to a game of 20 questions, something that will converse with you and ask you questions in order to narrow down to just that one or two or three clinical trials that might be a match for you. And it's that kind of thing where it's not fully general conversation of the sort that I think you and I were talking about just a minute ago, but is slightly more structured than that in order to help you more intelligently and more efficiently find the right medical or healthcare solution for you. And that kind of application is something that we're really putting a lot of um, kind of heart and mind into, along with many others around the world. And it's exciting that we're starting to see these things actually make it into clinical use today. And so, so um, I, I kind of agree with you. I <clears throat> roll my eyes at, sometimes at the overheated hype around you know, intelligent agents and chatbots as well, just like anybody else. But it's really getting somewhere in these in these more limited domains. I think it also says why the interesting work in domains like this is going to be, you know, it's not generic, right? You're solving a specific problem and there's a lot of investment in kind of getting the machine learning, the AI right for this particular problem as opposed to implementing a generic framework. That's right. Awesome. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about the stuff you're seeing and working on in the healthcare space. A ton of really interesting examples in there. And um, I'm looking forward to kind of following all this work and, and digging deeper. Thank you. And we didn't even talk about China once. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned ResNet a few times, kind yes. of taunting me to dive into that conversation. Uh, but I'll refer folks to the uh, the article and we'll put the link in the show notes. Sounds great. It was really uh, a pleasure chatting. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.